0: I'm gonna move up a bit. Don't be frightened or scared. But uh, thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, a very just a really great encouragement last night to be with you and to celebrate your 75 years and also to remember the 75th of the OPC. I really particularly enjoyed the slideshow. Even though I don't know the people, it's just we think about the body of Christ and we think about all the work that God does in His. In his body and in local churches over the years, it's just a tremendous encouragement and, and just a, a real warm time for me, uh, even as a visitor. Um, today we want to look at the five solas, which are the main principles of the Reformation. We're going to talk about our Reformed distinctives, how they apply to our lives even today, even after 500 or so years. But uh, to get started, let's, why don't we open up with a word of prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, uh, Son, Holy Spirit, we pray to you that one true God, the triune God who has revealed himself, uh, who has created and who has come, condescended, who has covenanted with his people uh, so that we, the body of Christ, would know you, would be able to fellowship with you and fellowship with each other through the Spirit and the bonds of peace. We pray that you would be with us this morning, that we would be caused to see you ever more clearly, and that you would work within us, a continuous, continuously knitting us together as the body of Christ, and helping us to glorify you in all things. So we pray even this morning as we learned about some history and some theology, Lord, that it would always be in service of the church and in service of your kingdom, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last night we, we spent some time uh, taking a rather large sweep of, of history, a large swath of history, looking at some changes between the Catholic Church and the Protestants throughout these last 500 years. And the big point we tried to make was that there have been huge changes on both sides. And so then we had to ask, well, if there are so many big changes, the Catholics today and even Protestants today aren't the same as they were back then. What about the Reformation? Is that still significant? And we concluded, absolutely. Absolutely it's still significant. Though maybe not in terms of the large denominational bodies today. But churches like this, churches like the PCA, the URC, many other churches hold the Reformation principles very dear. And it's an important thing because we understand that they are indeed uh, the teachings of Scripture. So today... Uh, We want to kind of unpack those main principles and try to understand how they are still significant and what happens if we don't uphold them. Why it's so important to hold these truths dear and to preach them and teach them in our churches and uh, understand them even in our daily lives. So we're going to look at the five solas. We, We went over them just briefly last night in quiz time. And basically the five solas are slogans. We're going to go through them. And they, they were used to condense the basic concerns of the Reformation. It's, it's sort of like shorthand for what the Reformation was about. Now, slogans can be really handy things. Um, here are a few. Let's, let's see if you know what these slogans are from or who, whose slogans they are. A diamond is forever. Anyone heard that one? Anybody know where that comes from? Close. That's every kiss begins with gay. <laughs> yeah Hell'sburg's another it's not actually a jewelry company it's the Monopoly De Beers they're the ones that own basically all the diamonds do all the diamond mining control the prices and everything really stick it to us guys you have to buy those engagement rings breakfast of champions No, not Cheerios close General Mills same company Wheaties these are a little old I know they're stale but hopefully your Wheaties aren't stale have it your way Burger King Just Do It, Nike. Nike. Any others? Any other good examples? Maybe something more modern? Nothing? Well, there's a bunch. We know that advertisers love to come up with these slogans in the hope of condensing their message. What they want to do is they want to communicate something to you about their product, whether or not it's true. They want to pack it all into one quick phrase, one slogan so that when you hear it, you're reminded of everything they've packed into it. It's it's a, it's a shorthand. It's a way to communicate a message. Now, of course, the Reformed Church wasn't about advertising, per se. Um, but yet, the slogans eventually arose. They weren't original to the Reformation. I tried to find the history of how they came about and wasn't able. I even asked the professor, and he wasn't able to point me in the right direction. So it's a mystery, but they came up eventually later. Uh, but they were, arose so that they became shorthand in a quick way for people to understand what the Reformation was all about. Now, sola just is Latin for alone or only. And so when we go through the solas, um, it means something alone. Uh, can we name them? We named them last night. Do we remember from last night what they are? Just go ahead and name, Just belt it out. Christ alone? Yeah, that's solus Christus is the fancy Latin. Any other? Oh God. Uh, scripture alone is uh, sola scriptura. There's a similar one, yeah, only God, but it's to God's glory, so it's soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. Faith, yeah, sola fide. And then one more, sola gratia, which is, which is uh, grace alone. Sola fide is by faith alone. But let's start here with sola scriptura. I mean, where else could we really start... To focus on the main difference between the Reformed churches and the Catholic churches than on the doctrine of Scripture. Now, many people um, question whether or not in theology you should start with doctrine of God or whether you should start with doctrine of Scripture. And if you think about it, you could really start either way because the doctrine of Scripture is how you come to know about who God is, but yet Scripture is what it is because it's God's Word. So there are two are very dependent upon one another and both are, are satisfactory starting points. But we want to start with the doctrine of Scripture. Because of our particular view, which we think is the correct view, all the other doctrines end up flowing out of the way we read, the way we treat, the way we interpret our Bibles. And because other Christian bodies and and the Catholic Church have a different understanding of what Scripture is, necessarily, they're going to arrive at different conclusions about life and, and doctrine. So all of this is summed up, our view of Scripture is summed up in this Reformation slogan, Sola Scriptura, which basically just means Scripture alone. There's a a lot of different ways that you can understand that Scripture alone. I mean, uh, we could could say, do we need teachers? Scripture alone. Why do we need a teacher? Uh, What happens if somebody interprets a passage in a wildly new way? Well, this type of mentality has been really the root of all sorts of heresies and aberrant teachings. If you understand Scripture alone to mean you and your Bible by yourself without any concern for any other Christian or the work of the Spirit in the life of the church, you could end up with some big problems. Sola Scriptura is about the authority, the sufficiency, and the ultimacy of God's Word. It's not about the individual interpreter, but it's about what Scripture is and how it's authoritative in our life. And therefore, it's a matter of starting point. It's a matter of foundations. Where do we stand? Where do we start in doctrine? We start with God's Word, because it is the ultimate authority. I like to make the point sometimes when we think about ultimate authorities, uh, And and some people ask, well, how do you prove Scripture? Well, ultimately, Scripture testifies to itself. Because it is God's own word, it has to ultimately, the ultimate reference point has to be itself. If it's the ultimate authority, we can't appeal to other authorities ultimately. Think about the United States Supreme Court. You know that the United States has a huge court system. And you might go to a very low court. Maybe you're charged with a crime or you're sued. And you lose um, and you have a problem with that well what can you do you can appeal and what happens when you appeal it goes to the next highest court and they can decide if they want to accept the appeal or not they can see if it has any merit if it does then they can try and let's say you win there Well, what can the what can your opponent do they can appeal it again so you see there's this whole process of lower courts, and then there's a higher court that judges the lower court, and then an even higher court that judges that lower court. But what happens when you get to the Supreme Court? If you lose your case in the Supreme Court, what can you do? You can go home. (laughs) That's right. You can't appeal anymore. Why? Because it's the ultimate authority in our country for legal matters. There's no higher authority for judicial verdicts in our country than the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, in a similar way, if, if we approach Scripture and we want to understand what the Bible is, if we go to some scientist or some uh, archaeologist, ultimately, and ask him as the final judge, is Scripture God's Word? Then who are we really giving the, the full, ultimate authority to? We're we're giving it to man. We're not giving it to God. Now, I I don't want you to misunderstand and say that we can't look at historical truths and biblical archaeological findings. Those are all good things. But we have to understand what their ultimate place is. And nothing, nothing can be above Scripture in terms of authority, ultimate authority. It judges itself. Because it's God's very Word. And nobody can judge God. Because God is the ultimate, absolute, and sufficient uh, existent a thing of, that, 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 that lives. I mean, all things live and move and have their being in God. And it's His Word that stands above all other words. Now, Catholics often speak of a two-source theory of revelation. And in that view, Scripture and tradition are different, but yet they're equally authoritative. They shed light on one another. So you have Scripture on one hand, but you also have this whole trend of history and tradition, and there can be crosstalk. Scripture can interpret tradition, but what happens more often is that tradition interprets Scripture and decides what Scripture says and how it's supposed to be understood. Uh, rather, you have this teaching office, this magisterium, this official Catholic doctrine, uh, that, that stands on its own, and you have Scripture over here. And then I mentioned, of course, earlier that me and my Bible approach, that's another way to approach Sola Scriptura, with that I could be reading my Bible at home, not be a church member, never go to church, and I could say, well, it's Scripture alone, just me reading. But of course, we know individual interpreters can be wrong. People can have misguided thoughts, and they can go off in their own way. Not having a check or a balance, or not having the wisdom and the insight of others in the church to balance them from going off to going off the deep end. So, how do we deal with this? How do we understand Scripture alone and its authority, but yet relate it to the body of Christ? And what's the role of other Christians and the church in Scripture and and how we understand was well, as Reformed Christians, particularly in the OPC, we confess the Westminster Standards. This really is a, a differentiating factor in who we are as Reformed people, that we have a confession, a Reformed confession that we can point to and say, this is what our, our church is about. And we hold that Scripture alone is authoritative, that it establishes and grounds the body of Christ. And so, but we also hold that Christians are connected And that the Spirit, when the Spirit's given, it's not that one individual has the Holy Spirit and nobody else, or that one individual has the Holy Spirit indwelling him more than somebody else in in some way, but rather that the Spirit is given to the entire body and that we are connected. And so therefore, our understanding of Scripture in some way should reflect the wisdom and the the, uh, knowledge that others in our churches have as well. And so, if that's the case, then we need to ask, is tradition all that bad? Is, it, is tradition in every case? History, confessions, uh, traditional ways of understanding the Bible? Because Catholics have such a high view of that, does that mean we need to throw that out? Do we throw out all our history books? Throw out, throw out all our commentaries? Do we throw out all our confessions? Well, no, certainly not. We just have to understand what they are and what place they play in the church. We know that history and tradition, the wisdom that that God has given to His people throughout the ages is a a very wise thing. It's It's a help. It's a guidance. And as we approach the difficult texts of Scripture, we understand that people have been thinking about these things. Wise men of God have been thinking about these things for many, many years. But the difference is, that a commentary is not the authority over Scripture. Even our standards, as, as high as we revere them and regard them, the Westminster Confession of Faith in no way stands above the Word as an authority in our lives. But rather, the standards are a secondary standard. They're subservient, and they serve the Church by teaching what is taught in Scripture. But if we ever find anything that's in the standards, that's incorrect. And we, we ought to revise it. We go through the right channels of doing that. We don't do that on our own, but we go through the right channels. And that's happened in the past. The Americans changed some things on the relationship of the church and government. And, and there have been times where the standards have been changed. And that's fine because they're a secondary standard. And of course, I, you know, all of this comes right back to what Scripture is. The standards, or Westminster Confession of Faith, everything else has to be secondary, though important, because Scripture is what it is. The, the Confession of Faith says in uh, chapter 1, section 4, "...the authority of holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received, because it is..." The Word of God. That's why we believe Scripture ultimately, because it's the Word of God and it testifies to itself. This was a big deal, of course, during the Reformation. Uh, The whole question of authority, uh, where do we go? How do we deal with interpretation? How do we deal with tradition, particularly Catholic tradition? Uh, Martin Luther dealt with it. So So did John Calvin. And the problem was that they were not only faced with exegeting Scripture, trying to interpret it rightly, but they were also challenged and fighting, combating with opposing views of authority. So you see, they they not only had to go like like a, a friend of mine and I might subscribe to the same standards, but yet we might differ on one passage. And we might go back and forth, and I can show them, well, oh, the Greek says this, and you say, well, you don't know your Greek that well. Uh, the Greek says this, and we can have this debate as brothers, but we're still agreeing that Scripture is what it is, that it's the Word of God, and that our tradition is what it is, a secondary <coughs> standard. But if you think about what the Reformers had to do, not only were they trying to understand what the Scriptures said, but even if they came to a good interpretation And presented it, a Catholic might say, well, I agree with your steps, but the church has said that that's not what this Bible says. The tradition interprets it another way, so therefore you have to be wrong. You see, it can be a very difficult thing. And that's really where the Reformation, in many ways, comes back to. How we understand what God's Word is, and how it relates to all of the authorities. So friends, what happens if we pull the plug on Sola Scriptura? I mean, do you, do you see, and maybe you have friends, or maybe you've had different events happen in your lives where this principle of God's Word wasn't, wasn't always there, or you saw a church or a friend encounter some problems. Why is Sola Scriptura important today? And what happens if, if we pull the plug on it and say that it's not the sole ultimate authority? Anybody? That's a great point. The book of Judges is this huge huge downward spiral. That just you see more and more what happens when the Lord leaves these people to themselves. Disobedience. Everyone does what was right in his own eyes. That's exactly right. Yeah. Man's nature has not changed. Mm. The solution is still the same. Yeah. Yeah, we're not uh any less fallen now than, than Adam was or anybody after him. Uh, so how could, you know, and God's Word hasn't changed in relation to our situation, right? That, that, that man's condition hasn't changed, and therefore also we should understand Scripture rightly always. Yeah? Without a point of reference, a standard one doesn't know if one's choice is right or wrong. hmm Mm-hmm. So, we live in a state of sin, eventually, if mm-hmm. we have no standard. Example, watch the news. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's not only the news, but you can read uh, most popular books, and there have been different worldviews presented in the last several decades. There's, there's been this whole movement of postmodernism, which, as an intellectual movement, might be dead, uh, but the, the effects of it are still phew, just ravaging. Not only, not only uh, our country, but the church. That's a great point. We don't have a scene. Yeah. And you look all on different churches. You can't stopped using Bible truth. Society starts dictating what it will have to be as trans. You homosexuality. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm a Great point. The culture starts to dictate uh, what the culture should do, but also what the church should do. And it's because we don't have a standard, and it's because since we don't have a standard, everyone does what's right things us. Right. Because we like to be our own standards rather than submitting to Scripture. Those are all great points. So you see, sola scriptura, even though it's a Latin phrase, spoken in a dead language, still very applicable today. Principle that we need to uphold because it's, it's thoroughly biblical. The second one is sola gratia. Which is grace alone, by grace alone. Ephesians 2.8, 8, which um, I'm, I'm going to be preaching from uh, later this morning, says, By grace you have been saved. And if we're going to understand this, particularly in light of the concerns of the Reformation, we need to define what we mean by grace. Well, the Reformed have understood grace in, in many different ways, but perhaps uh, the most succinct and one I like the most is demerited favor, it's a disposition. It's it's a way that God relates to us. Even though we don't deserve His good favor, His good pleasure, even though we deserve the opposite of His good pleasure, we deserve His wrath, His condemnation, we receive grace. By grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not of yourselves. Rather, it's a gift of God. The Roman Catholic Church teaches about grace in a much different way. For them, it's not a disposition of God. Rather, uh, most often it's spoken of as as sort of a substance, uh, something that God can impart to people. Rather, it's a divine quality which is imparted to man. Not going into all the detail, I've I've cut a lot of stuff out because it's it's unnecessary here uh, for our purposes this morning. But for them, grace in a way balances your life out because you're created with this tendency towards sin, this tendency towards self-love, or fancy words, concupiscence. And for them, grace is given to stop that drift. And then later on, uh, because of certain things that have happened, uh, because of the fall or what's happened with Adam, now that grace most locally mm-hmm. is found in the sacraments. The Catholic Church. So you need to have the sacraments over and over. Not because God wants to commune with you, not because it's a means of grace through faith in the way that we understand. It, but because you need more of that substance to balance your life out. That's how grace works in the traditional Roman Catholic setting. Very different from what we teach. We teach that we are saved entirely by grace, which is God's good pleasure to bestow his favor upon us, even though we've earned the very opposite. Romans 4.4 4 teaches, Now to the one who works, the wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And what are wages? What are wages? Wages are what you earn from doing work. Romans 6.23 says, this. it actually describes what's on the natural man's paycheck. The, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so in this way, the Reformed teaching not only combats Roman Catholicism, which views it as kind of a work faith-plus or grace-plus works, but, it, but the Reformed teaching also combats all forms of semi pelagianism or Arminianism, all sub-Christian forms of salvation. Anything that includes something other than God's pure favor as a cause, as the reason for your salvation, runs counter to the very clear biblical teaching on salvation, that it's entirely His work, His good favor, His grace by which we're saved. There's no cooperation with God in salvation. It's the work of Him alone. And this is precisely why the Reformers have maintained that salvation is by grace alone, and it's precisely why sola gratia is still important. Grace alone, that's what we mean by it. We say that in our churches. So, if we pull the plug, if we get rid of sola gratia, we end up in all measure of other types of forms of salvation. They can go from, uh, you know, the, the, the slight deviation, it's a big deviation, but it, but it gets by people's senses sometimes, where we have to do something in order to maintain our salvation. That's a form of semi Pelagianism. There's the other forms where you have to work, you have to make yourself right before God somehow. Or the very full-blown version of Pelagianism that you work out your salvation entirely and that God looks at your works and decides if you've done enough and then saves you. All those are not scriptural teachings. And if you hold to that doctrine, if somebody truly holds to that doctrine, not only are their works no good, but their understanding of salvation is no good. And it's no salvation at all. But it's entirely of God. By grace alone. Sola gratia. The third one we mentioned was sola fide. Uh, and this was often called the material cause of the Reformation. Luther called it the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Sola fide simply means faith alone. And we are saved not only by grace alone, but through faith alone. We all know this because of Scripture. So you see how they all tie together? Solo Scriptura, solo so Sola Fide. Again, the verse uh, we're going to look at uh, later this morning, Ephesians 2, 8-9 through says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's a gracious thing. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith then, we often call it the instrument of, Let's unpack that for for a minute. This Reformation Principle refers specifically to the doctrine of justification. How are you right before God? And there's a large difference between the Reformed and, and the Catholic conceptions on this subject. Catholics view justification as the impartation of God's life to the believer. Through justification, in the Catholic sense, sinners are cleansed of their sin... And are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, we don't disagree that those types of things happen in the Christian's life through salvation. God does cleanse us from our sins. He does sanctify us, transforming us, making us more and more holy until that day when he returns. And we'll have resurrected, glorified bodies. But that's not all the doctrine of justification. We have other doctrines for that. And it's important not to mix them up. But for the Catholics, that's all packed into the one doctrine of justification. The Reformed teach that justification is an act of God's free grace, an act, not a work, an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's what the Westminster Short Catechism teaches. It's strictly forensic. That's a fancy word that just means legal. Justification does not change you in intrinsically who you are inside. It changes your position with God so that now you are pardoned, guilt-free. You've been declared righteous in the courtroom of the divine. That's what justification is. Luther used the expression simul justus et peccator, which means at the same time justified and a sinner. When a believer is justified in the Reformed or Lutheran sense, his righteousness is extrinsic. It's outside of himself. And even though he is no longer guilty, he still deals with indwelling sin, right? He still needs to be sanctified. His, his status with God is settled. He's no longer a child of wrath. He's no longer condemned. But we know... If we believed in Christ, we are justified today, already. And that's a done deal. But we still sin. We still deal with indwelling sin. That's because that's getting dealt with in sanctification. Or, but rather, justification is strictly a legal matter. There's another point I want to make about faith. We talk about faith a lot. It's name of your church. <laughs> it's important. Uh, faith is a very key principle that we need to have, but we need to understand what faith is and how it works in the Christian idea. I'm a big Chicago Cubs fan, and I have faith in the Chicago Cubs, but no matter how much faith I have in them, even in their new front office, which is looking good these days, um, or faith in their players, I cannot bring the World Series title about through my faith. Faith is significant only in relation to the significance and the effectiveness of its object, what it believes in. Your faith doesn't have power on its own, but faith in Christ has power because of who you're believing in, who it connects you to. Faith in the cubs is hopeless. And faith in Christ <laughs> is not. The object of faith, when we talk when we're talking about the Christian conception, the reformed conception of faith. It's absolutely significant, but not because it's your work, not because it's your belief, but because of the fact that it's brought about in you by the Spirit, and it ties you to Jesus Christ. That's why faith is so significant. And so we must never forget that justification or any benefit, adoption, sanctification, you think about our perseverance, anything that's bound up with our salvation, all of those benefits only have their significance because of who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. Therefore, having faith in that Christ, we are redeemed people. We're free from the guilt and the power of sin, and we've been accepted into his family as full heirs. That's the faithful part. Have you ever wondered why God decided to use faith as an instrument? Other people have questioned this, asked, well, maybe God could use love. Why can't we love Christ and receive justification? Well, it, it can be difficult to ask, and, and even dangerous to ask speculative questions like that. But I think it's, this is a generally good question. And I think it's because faith, and Sinclair Ferguson wrote, wrote this as well, I think faith is particularly suited for this task because it is strictly receptive. It's non-contributory. It's entirely receptive and reliant upon another, not on yourself. And if you think about that, 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 that's a very appropriate way of considering why God decided to use faith as the instrument through which salvation happens, the instrument that ties us, that unites us to Christ. It's because we don't contribute, but rather we receive the benefits. We receive the person of God in union the reformers fought against the idea that faith was only part of the story. In the Catholic view, you had to believe in Christ, but that belief was coupled with works, which would secure one's salvation. We speak of faith, rather, as the sole ground of justification. It's not faith plus, faith 2.0. It's faith alone and nothing else. What happens when we start to pull the plug on Sola fide. Do we see this? Do we see this in other churches? I don't want to name names, but we see examples. There's there's deviant theologies, uh, even in the Reformed, broader Reformed world. There's one called the uh, New Perspective on Paul, which teaches that you get into the covenant by faith, but you stay in by works. It's another fancy word, covenantal nomism, which means covenantal law. When you get in by 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 faith and you stay in by works, these are very dangerous teachings. And and they're very significant. They always permeate. They always crop up in the lives of the church. And we've got to understand that we stand on Christ. We stand on His Word. We stand in Christ alone. And if we ever add anything to that, we've gone away from the biblical teaching. And we need to maintain that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that brings us now to our fourth sola, which is solus Christus, sometimes called solo Christo. Solus Christus, in Christ alone, is the principle that there is no other savior, there is no other mediator between God and man, but Jesus Christ alone. The difference between solus Christus and sol- solo Christo is, is simply just the difference between Christ alone and through Christ alone. So if you ever wonder which is which, if you ever see these listed somewhere, they're the same, basically the same thing. Basically, we mean that there is no other Savior, no other mediator between God and man but Jesus Christ alone. Calvin wrote, this is one of my favorite Calvin quotes. He wrote, as long as Christ remains outside of us, And we are separated from Him. All that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. If He's outside of us, if He's not united to us through the Spirit, then we have no hope. Because we know Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And He mediates in a specific way for a specific people. And he calls people to himself. He dies for the sins of his people and he reconciles them to God. And even today we have a savior, we have a Christ in the heavenly places pleading our case by his blood to the Father. That's why we can pray now, our Father who art in heaven. Because Christ has opened that door and he maintains the open door on our behalf. He is our connection. Our, our, our entrance into the heavenly places. Well, what does this mean for the Roman Catholic priesthood and the sacraments? When we think about the way that those are, are formulated, it's not simply a memorial or some sort of visible showing of what Christ has done necessarily, but rather what the priesthood Is in the Roman Catholic conception, is a mediator. Now, your pastor serves uh, rightly, and he, he, in a sense, is sort of a a priest, but not in the Roman Catholic sense at all. You don't have to go through your pastor to confess your sins to God. And the grace that comes to you doesn't come through your pastor first, and then, of course, he's preaching the word, and that's a means of grace that that, you know you can be blessed and benefited. But there is no one between you and the Father but Jesus Christ Himself. There are officers, there are structures, there are particular authorities in the church. I don't mean to, to downplay that or neglect that, but you do not have an earthly father earthly theological thought. You do not have a priestly intercessor in the church other than Jesus Christ himself because he is the great High priest and you're united to him and you don't need to go through a priesthood. What happens if we remove Solus Christus? We put up barriers between us and the salvation that Christ has purchased for us. And given through us. We remove ourselves. From God the Father. By making more and more steps. Between us and him. It would be like me calling. Pastor Ellis. Who would call somebody else. Who would call somebody else. Who would call somebody else. Who would call who I wanted to get to. When Christ has paved the way. For me to call that person. Directly. We don't have mediators. Other than Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior. Why would we set up barriers to that salvation, to that Savior, to that person? We don't have to, because Christ is all in all our Savior and the one who has saved us and the one who ties us to the Trinity God. Finally, Soli Deo Gloria. When we speak of Soli Deo Gloria, we're really asking who gets the credit in all of this? Solus Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura. Why do we teach all this? Where does it go? What's the point? What's the purpose? Solely deo gloria, to God's glory alone. Now, if salvation is in part by works, or if it's outside of Christ, or if it doesn't happen entirely according to Scripture, the glory does not go to God. Rather, it's shared with someone else or something. Else. And I love where the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the very first question. Does anyone know the very first question? I'll ask you. What is the chief end of man? Does anyone know? Yeah, to glorify God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is a thoroughly profound statement. It sounds simple, but it is, it is simple, but it's also just so deep and rich. We are to glorify God in all things. And what better picture and demonstration of God's glory than the salvation that is wrought and brought to us by Christ. Surely God gets the glory in whatever He does. We don't deny that. He would be glorified all the same if He decided not to save anyone. It's a hard teaching. But God gets the glory even in in condemnation. Um... He would be glorified and if He didn't even create the world. God exists immutably, unchangeably. And He's all glorious, even as He exists in Himself. He doesn't need us, but rather He decides in His own good pleasure, out of this eternal mystery, to create us, to commune with us, to save us, even though we felt this sin, and to bring us into a state of righteousness through His Son, Jesus Christ. We, we should never think of God's glory as someone being in competition with our own desires and aims. Sometimes we think about that. Well, if I have to glorify God, then that means I don't, I don't get to enjoy anything. I don't get to have, have fun in this life. That's the wrong way to think about the Christian life. Rather, we shouldn't think about God's glory being in competition with our ultimate happiness. Because they're one and the same. They're not one and the same, but they have the same purpose, the same goal. The same direction. The Shorter Catechism, question one, gets it right. God's glory and and our true enjoyment go hand in hand. For why were we created? What's our main purpose? Why do we exist? It's to glorify God. And if we fulfill our true purpose, the reason reason why we were created, that's where our ultimate happiness and our ultimate joy is going to be. But of course, we know because of sin, we desire other things. Our eyes drift away from our Savior. We forget how great and glorious He is. And we think that our happiness is going to be found in whatever we see is right in our own eyes, rather than what God has given to us. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, he makes a really great point. He wrote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are created to glorify God, but we're so content often with making mud pies in the slum. Rather than doing that which God has created us to do, you see, our ultimate joy, our ultimate happiness is found in Christ, in glorifying God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit for who He is and for what He has done in our lives and what He has done in the world. And that leads to the fullness of our own happiness and enjoyment. It's tough at times, we don't always understand that. We're dealing with sin. that's the sure testimony of Scripture. The Bible teaches that the truly fun stuff, I should say. The eternal enjoyment doesn't lie in the things of this world, but in God Himself. And therefore, we must not share the glory with anyone or with anything but the trying God. We don't share the glory with ourselves by ascribing part of our salvation to our own works. Neither do we share the glory with the saints... By praying to Mary, or to priests, by praying to a priest, or, or by putting other barriers in between us and God, neither do we share the glory with any other standard by rejecting God's sole standard for our lives, which is His very Word. We share the glory with nothing, but we ascribe it all to God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Soli Deo Gloria. God be the glory in all things. So that tomorrow is Reformation Day, and we're getting closer and closer to the actual 500th anniversary of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. We see, I hope, I hope you learned as we looked at this, that the principles that the Reformation was about are just as important today as they were back then. Though things change, the more they change, the more they stay the same. And we see that these biblical truths are still as fresh as they could ever be, and as applicable and as important as they are. The basic questions about salvation, about who God is, about how he saved us, about what we are and what we are to do, are not only applicable to us here within these walls today, but applicable to everybody in the world.